This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. The space program is built on trust. And I, I knew that before I even started working there. You know, when I was going on site and seeing dad train and then watched him launch the first time and then launch the second time after the Challenger flight, you just realize how many people have to do their job right. And I'm talking all the way from the, the first engineer that designed a piece to the technicians that machined the piece to the people that assembled the piece, the people that ta- you know test it, to the people who make the flight plan, to the people watching the countdown clock. I mean, all everybody. You are trusting everybody involved in that mission to make sure that your dad comes home alive. That's that's what you're doing. And and once you accept that you're a part of that team, then you know that you hold lives in your hands. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. Remember when you were really little and your mom would dress you up to head off to school or go outside to play? My guest today turned the tables on her father one day in a truly unique way. She dressed him up to go out on a spacewalk, which, as you can guess, is a much more complex and life-critical task than buttoning a jacket or zipping up a snowsuit. You can recover from discovering you missed a button on your shirt but not from failing to get your spacesuit sealed up properly. Amy Ross grew up immersed in the space shuttle program. Her father is astronaut Jerry Ross, seven-time spacewalker, and her mother, Karen, was one of the dietitians who prepared in-flight meals for shuttle crews. Amy started working in the space field as an undergraduate, taking advantage of Purdue University's cooperative education agreement with NASA and then went on to get a master's degree in space studies from the University of North Dakota before joining NASA full-time in 1996. Today, she's one of the world's leading experts in all things spacesuits, how they're designed to keep astronauts alive in the harsh environment of deep space and on other planets, and how new models have to be built to let astronauts work in that diverse set of environments. She's at the cutting edge of NASA's work to build new spacesuits for the Artemis expeditions to the moon and future flights to Mars. Each new design requires a creative fusion of physics, biometrics, physiology, engineering, and material science. So let's suit up and meet Amy Ross. 
Amy, you, your dad came to NASA, to the Johnson Space Center, as an astronaut in 1980, the class right after mine. Who was the daughter, Amy, that came along with him, with both your parents, when they made that move? How old was she, and what was she into? Yeah, so um, let's see. He was selected. We moved to Houston in my second grade year. So we'd come from Edwards Air Force Base, where they, he was a student and then TIE flight engineer. And so we had moved from, I haven't thought about this story in a while, so that's why I'm a little, <laughs> little rough. Yeah, I was, I was in second grade. We moved here just because dad had replied in, in the year you were selected, 78, and wasn't selected. And so he worked with the Air Force to get assigned to Johnson Space Center to see if he could get some experience and maybe have a better shot at the next time. So we moved here in 78. Then when I heard that dad was selected, I was actually in Indiana on my grandparents' farm. And uh, I remember I was a gymnast. So I remember walking along the, the top rail of the fence saying, my dad is an astronaut. My dad is an astronaut. <laughs> I was in fourth grade at that point. <laughs> and, and so that was a fun memory. And people always ask me as a kid, you know, what was it like having your dad be an astronaut? Well, you know, dad was selected in, in my fourth grade year and we'd grown up chasing the shuttle enterprise, you know, the landing test down the pad at Edwards. And we'd always gone out and looked at the constellations and we'd launched small rockets. And, you know, really it was just growing up in my family and it wasn't any, I didn't know different. <laughs> it, it didn't seem that special to you. It was just my family. Yeah. Well, and especially growing up in the area where we live, Clear Lake and Friendswood, there's a lot of people whose dads are astronauts and there are people whose dads are flight directors or moms are flight directors. And like there, there's fewer flight directors than there are astronauts. So man, man, man. You know, <laughs> it, it wasn't allowed to be a special thing. And it was just one of the major industries in the area. And so a lot of people worked in the space industry and was kind of expected around here. Yeah. One of our classmates recalls coming home, and the first thing his wife did the next morning was tell him to you know, get outside and mow the lawn. The yeah. grass was way too high. Yeah. And his own kids were just as blasé about it as you are. This is what dad does. Yeah. But all the neighborhood kids were trailing along behind him with the lawnmower. Cause, <laughs> you know, now he had a standout status. He just came back from space. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so just a reference for people's understanding, the Johnson Space Center in Houston is actually about 20 miles outside of Houston. And along the shore of Galveston Bay, a little embayment called Clear Lake. And Friendswood and Clear Lake are probably the two primary bedroom communities for the Space Center. So if you throw a rock in any direction, you're likely to hit either the an astronaut or flight director or the spouse or child of, yes. of one of those people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, pretty interesting. So what were your, you were a gymnast, you mentioned that. What else were your early interests as a child? Well, I always have enjoyed animals. And so, you know, I, I continue that today. I've got a foster kitten with me today. So if you hear a little squeak, it's this little guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's still wasn't fed, even though he's been fed like three times today. I always like books and reading. And so one of the things I did during junior high was help during lunchtime. I would like to go to the library instead of hanging out outside and reshelf books. Um, so when I was in high school, that's kind of the three things that I looked at doing going forward. You know, space had always been a part of my life. Exciting, interesting, inspiring. Yep. I love my my little critters. So maybe there's something I could do there, consider being a veterinarian. 
and then librarian because I love the written word I love reading and I love what it can do for people to explore the world that uh, is bigger than the one that they live in and so how did you sort that out what was your strategy for figuring out which way to go so I think it's really important a my parents did a good job of trying to make me aware of just how big the world is out there and what all the opportunities are. And they, they were definitely into a try before you buy kind of a philosophy. So, you know, <laughs> I'd done the work at the library where I'd done the book shelving and talked to the librarians and, and tried to get a feel for what that job might be like. And then I did work for a veterinarian for a summer. So I had, you know, I had the junk jobs where I was yeah. <laughs> cleaning kennels and walking dogs and, you know, walking the floor, but you got to be around it. You got to see what was happening in the clinic. You got to see, you know, who did what jobs, how many people came through a day, you know, how they dealt with the different issues they came up against. So, and I got to take care of the animals on the weekends and those kinds of things. So it was a good experience as well. And then of course I had the in with being close to the space center where since I was interested, dad took me in and had, I had a meeting with the, it's now called the Pathways Intern Program, but it was the Cooperative Education Program at the time, Okay. where you, you get hired on to work as a student employee at Johnson Space Center as you go through college. And so that's a way that you can get hired. And so I, I asked about what that was like, how you get into that. I also was selected just because they knew that my dad worked on the space program to do a one day shadow it was mm-hmm. through the business program at school, <laughs> but still it got me on site at, at NASA and into some meetings and talking to some people at, at Johnson Space Center that I hadn't met and been with before and saw what their day was like. So just trying to get some of those experiences and get exposed to what your, your life would be like in one of those careers was really helpful. So how did your lifestyle judgment pan out with those three? I mean, you clearly went the Space Avenue, but do you recall what kind of factors tilted you towards space or was it an affirmative bent towards space or a negative, ooh, I've just discovered I really don't want to do that with one of the other two? Uh, some of both. Yeah, okay. yeah. So with the librarian, I felt fully capable of doing that job uh, at the time. And I tend to like to learn. I tend to like challenges. And I just wondered if that would not end up being uh, less interesting over time. Ah, as it turned out, it's, it became much more of an IT career, and it's not my favorite thing. So it's kind of a good thing that I moved away from that direction. I'm sure I could find a, a, a niche, but you know, in general, that, that kind of went in a direction that wasn't going to be as interesting yeah. to me. And you can't see where those deep bends in the road might be. No, yeah. There's yeah. no way I could have known that. No, no, that just worked out well that way. Yeah. Then... With the animals and considering being a veterinarian and working at the vet clinic at the time, and this is where that exposure really comes in and you just can't get enough of that. I couldn't see past small animal clinic vet, right? Uh, Taking care of people's dogs and cats. Because back in the day when we were growing up, going to Houston was like an all day event. We made it a big deal. Yep. I didn't realize that people drove to Houston every day to do their jobs. So I could have been a a zoo vet or something, which would have been really cool. But I didn't go that direction kind of because I I didn't at the time, at that age, you know, when you're making all these life decisions, when you really don't have enough information to make these life decisions, I chose not to go that direction. And so then the space direction, I think I chose as much because I was a little afraid of it. Ah, I am strong academically in the liberal arts, you know, the the literature and those kinds of things. And 
at the time in high school, I wasn't as capable <laughs> in math and physics. So it really bothers me when I feel like I have a mountain I need to climb. Uh huh. And it's a little bit scary to climb that mountain. So I just want to go climb it and achieve it and, you know, step out that direction and see if I can, you know, conquer. Yeah. <laughs> and so going towards space and going toward an engineering degree, which is kind of one of the big directions you go to get into space, while it scares you a little bit, that makes it more exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so that's that's the direction that I, I went, as well as knowing that it would be fully acceptable in my family <laughs> to say I want to be an engineer <laughs> and go to school. To be that would be a well understood sentence. Dad, I want to be an engineer yeah. like you are. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but that's an impressive story because you talk to a lot of young people and to some degree, even their parents and counselors these days. And the emphasis is so much on find something you love, go with something you love. To me, it's always left out the important point that you just made, that you just touched on, which is shore up your weaknesses. Don't don't hide from them. Don't run from them. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm actually really proud of myself for doing that because it, it takes some bravery to face those things. And then I, I did that up front going in and choosing my career in a direction that wasn't necessarily toward my strengths, but I knew would be interesting and I would enjoy for a career. It has paid off in the long term. Yeah. There's rather a big difference, some would say, in terms of the, this is going to sound overdrawn, but you know, the depth of purpose or meaning to mankind of librarianship, veterinary medicine, and the space program. Would you agree with that? And did a factor like that weigh into your decision at all? Oh, yeah. No, definitely. I wanted to contribute. And so one of the things that was a big draw about the space program was that it, it did, it was going to be a place where I could make a contribution to not just the country, but to humanity. Um, so that that was big for me. And, and yeah, I didn't want to just have it fun for me. And that's one of the reasons I like NASA and NASA's aspect of the space program, because I'm not working for a profit. I'm, I'm working to improve the world um, through what the space program can do, can do for us. So that is a big piece of why I like working for the federal government in the NASA space program. Yeah, that sense of service is really, really meaningful. Yeah. And I wanted to say something else about the working into my weaknesses. I will say that I think a lot of, I don't know if this is true for everybody, but in st I think folks looking at STEM careers might think that you have to be pretty hardcore. You've got to love math. You've got to have just this innate understanding of physics or chemistry or, you know, one of those sciences. And it's, it's not true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in the end, you're going to do a lot of work in school. And so it's, it's just using that schoolwork to get you where you want to go, as long as you can keep focused on where you want to go. And that's, you know, part of what the cooperative education program pathways internship now did for me is that I got to go practice what I was, you know, learning um, did for me because in the end, my liberal arts side of things really does bring a different aspect to my engineering. There's a, a hundred different types of engineers, right? There's ones that like to sit in front of the computer and do analysis all day. There's engineers that really love designing mechanisms. There's engineers that love to code. There's engineers that love to test things and break them. 
(laughs) (laughs) But then there's engineers like me who really like to build a team and like to think about, you know, what needs to get done big picture to move forward. And what are the steps you need to take in this technology to get to where you can make a decision whether it's going to work for you or not. And then there's the telling the story about why this is the good way to go and not. And so all those different skills mean that there's a wide variety of types of people that can do STEM careers. And, and I think that's they're probably not as well explained as it should be to folks um, when they're trying to consider con- careers, because I think STEM can look very intimidating from the outside. And if you aren't ready to you know, take that big step and just say, yes, I want to go, or you don't have that motivator out there that, you know, I want to work for the space program that drives you to you know, do all that yeah. hard work, then it, it's a hard thing to choose to step into. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're exactly right that uh, my story is a bit parallel to yours. I actually began college as a liberal arts language major and different set of experiences and motives that showed me, gave me a glimpse of the scientist's lifestyle and I did just as you did, contrast it with what I had been able to see about the other lifestyles, which was a gl- you know a little glimmer, not a yeah, little sliver, yeah, a little like sliver, uh, but enough to persuade me I want to go with these guys, even mm-hmm. if I have to climb some extra hills, I want to go there. And I'm never the math whiz, and I'm not the in front of the computer all the time person either. So that that's a really really great point. And you know when you think about the storytelling part. I can't think of any career where you don't end up having to tell a story about what you're doing and why. It's to get a loan, or it's to recruit someone to join your company, or it's to get a research grant. Get investors. Get investors. Yep. So, you know, it helps to be able to paint a mental picture and explain it with some clarity. Yeah. And I think we all should take, never mind the statistics, take your marketing classes, you know, those kinds yep. of things. because. You need them anywhere, everywhere. So you followed, I guess your first moment of following in your dad's footsteps was going off to college because he's a boilermaker who went to Purdue and you are too. Was that just family loyalty or Purdue generates an awful lot of the engineers that end up at NASA. So it's kind of, I think, recognized as a premier source. How did all that factor into your thinking? Yeah, I give my parents a lot of credit because they are big Boilermaker fans and supporters you know, our family's from Indiana. I was born in Indiana. I was born actually at Purdue. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it made sense, but they said, look, look around, figure out where you want to go. And, you know, back in the day, it wasn't a web search. It was there, they had a big book, all the universities in it. You look through that. Looking at the big book, some of the schools that kind of stood out to me were places like Columbia, I had no idea Columbia was in Manhattan. That would not have done <laughs> where I want to go. But they, when I brought that to them, they're like, okay, if that's where you want to go. You know, Rice University here in Houston, uh, great, great school, school, great yeah. opportunities. And, you know, it was one of the options I was seriously considering. Of course, other state schools here in Texas, Texas A&M, you can't, you can't go wrong. There's a lot of screaming eggs out there that will <laughs> tell you so. <laughs> But yeah, you know, University of Southern California. There were just a lot of schools that I thought sounded interesting to me based on what I what I had in the book, and so they were good and and let me pick some to go visit. I, I visited Texas A and M and I decided 
they're a little too intense for me. <laughs> <laughs> I went on a football game day and that was probably a mistake. <laughs> no, it was probably wise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, the data point you needed. <laughs> right, right. I uh, went to Rice. It's a beautiful campus. Yep. Met some people that I really enjoyed talking to there. So that was a, a really good experience. Um, but then when I went up to Purdue and dad actually had a talk and he took me with him. So I think it's really important to go visit these campuses. I was sitting in our Purdue Memorial Union and it just, it felt right, you know? Yep. And so in the end, I chose to go there because I knew it would be a good school. I knew it had strong ties to NASA through the you know student education programs, but it felt comfortable. And I think that was very important to my decision-making that that was, I felt like I fit. Yeah. And, you know, you have to take all those big school, small school majors, mm -hmm. you know, careers, all those things into consideration. But that was my deciding factor. Yeah. It felt like the soil you should be planted in. Yep. And the, you know, the real benefit I didn't think too much about at the time, though, was that I was, while I was far away from my parents, which was one of the downsides of Bryce, they were 45 minutes Door to door, a little too close. <laughs> a little too close, <laughs> and you know, Purdue felt maybe a little too far. Except that my grandparents were an hour either side of Purdue, so all those long weekends and things that I just needed to get off campus and spend some time with people I know, they were there. Yeah, and I, I have a much different relationship with my grandparents because I went to Purdue than I would have if I had. Yeah, it was invaluable. <laughs> oh, that's huge! What a gift. Yeah, yeah very much. Yeah. And so did you go straight through bachelor's and then directly into master's? And when did you start the co-op program, the alternating semesters working at NASA? When, when did you start that? Right. So how the cooperative education program works very much depends on the school that you're going to. With Purdue, they let you start very young. Uh, so I started my first internship at NASA as a, I guess you'd say second semester sophomore, because I went freshman year through summer school as a sophomore. I took two classes, right? First engineering classes were that summer. And then I went to work at NASA. So I was 19 years old when I started working wow. at, at the Johnson Space Center. <laughs> and then every other semester, and every semester was spring, fall, summer, right? Um, or fall, spring, summer, was a, a school year, a school semester or a work semester. Okay. And so, you know, I just iterated through the year that way, through my undergrad. And then, yes, I went straight into my master's degree and I did two more, actually three more internships through my master's degree as well. Did you hop around to different parts of the Johnson Space Center or even more broadly different parts of NASA for those internships or, or did you slot into one and stay? How did that work and, and who made those decisions? Who yeah. figured out, well, let's, let's put Amy here this summer so, and I know friends that moved to different centers, but I pretty much stayed at Johnson, which included White Sands Test Facility. Out in New Mexico. Yes, because I did did that one time. The first semester, the the program decided where you went. Okay. okay they kind of looked at the needs of the center and, and where they needed folks to go and who does well with first semester interns. And, and that's where they sent me. So I went to the robotic manipulator system, the you know shuttle yeah. arm. Were my um, in flight operations, you know, used to be mission operations first semester. So with the flight controllers for the robotic arm, and that was a really good way to get introduced um, because you start to see how the space program works, how flight operations work, 
And um, I actually got to sit in the back rooms of Mission Control and take data from the robotic arm coming down. Ah. And I got to take classes and learn how to fly the robotic arm. And you know, so it was really exciting and a good way to start my internship and, and go, yes, I made a good decision to be an engineer and work at Johnson Space. So do you remember which mission you got to sit in Mission Control and take some, you're sort of, so there's two engineers in the main room of Mission Control monitoring a console and they have, they have the most direct interface to the crew that's maneuvering the arm. You're in one of the side rooms that's just got deeper engineering expertise to kind of back them up. Is that how that worked? Yes. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember, I don't, gosh, it would have been probably in the thirties somewhere. SDS 30 something. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. <laughs> I don't remember for sure. Yeah. Maybe forties at that point, but yeah, it was, uh, it's been a while ago since I was <laughs> we're not we're memory. not trying to do a memory test. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you worked in the RMS, the robotics area. I read somewhere that you did go out to White Sands and get to blow things up for a while because that's basically NASA's big flammability ignition explosion test facility, right? Hazardous testing. Hazardous yeah. testing. Yes. So after the first one, then I got to pick. Okay. And so I worked with the crew office for a semester when you had acted as a crew liaison, when the crew can't attend all the meetings, you go keep a, a tab on the different things that are going on and bring back issues, which is really interesting. I thought going to White Sands would be really fun. <laughs> and it was, I got, I really did get to blow stuff up. <laughs> I was trying to uh, do a range safety test and I had to use shape charges and I had to make sure the shape, shape charges worked first before we can use them in the test. Yeah, so we'd get shape charges in the mail <laughs> and I'd go out with the ordnance officer at, at White Sands in, in the desert, and we would go blow stuff up on Friday afternoon. And I'll tell you, that's a good way to relieve some stress. <laughs> yes. And again, you and I speak code together sometimes. But range safety is when you launch a rocket, there's always some explosives on it that if it starts to veer wildly off course, somebody on the ground with a big red button can blow it up so it doesn't hit people or places it ought to not hit. <laughs> Even the shuttle has range safety package on it. Right. So we were trying to figure out how far those pieces might fly. So how big of an area you need to keep clear when you did a launch. There you go. Yep. And where else? Arm, you know, the robotics and then crew and white sands. And I think pretty quick after that, I decided I wasn't sure I wanted to be in engineering, to tell you the truth. So the engineering directorate at Johnson Space Center. Okay. Again, I'm, I'm not your hardcore technical engineer at heart um, in some ways. But I thought I really needed to go try the engineering director to see what it was like. I am an engineer. I, I should go see what that is. Because I always thought I'd ended up in mission operations. You know, I would work as a flight controller. So I, I picked a summer. I, I picked what I thought would be the most fun thing to do in engineering, which I, was the suits. You know, Dad was always big in, into extracurricular activity, spacewalking. And that was always exciting to him. And I thought, well, spacesuits sound like a fun thing to do. So I worked with a gentleman named Joe Cosmo one summer. And spacesuit technology development. The legendary Joe Cosmo, it must be the said. The legendary Joe Cosmo. And uh, it was just, he and I, we were the team at the time, plus some technicians that you know were definitely a part of the team, major part of the team. And he gave me some jobs on, you know, I need a rig to help me test gloves. Go do it. And I had a lot of autonomy. I had a lot of um, room for creativity. Uh, I got to work hands-on with the technicians, and they helped me brainstorm. They helped me figure out how I could build the thing. Uh, I got to work with Joe on, you know, what needed to be done as far as, you know, what was important in testing the glove and how you might get that d data out of the test, so what kinds of activities you needed to do. And I really had fun. 
I was really drawn to being in the lab, touching hardware, and seeing the results of what you were doing. Some of the things I'd done previously, while very interesting in like real-time operations, you know, there's a space shuttle in the, in the sky, you don't get to see it and touch it in the same way as when you're trying to do the technology development and, and are testing things and, and you can learn what you want to learn right in front of you. Yeah. Um, so that was exciting to me. And so that kind of kept me coming back. And that's where I stuck after my several other interns. I, I just started coming back to work with Joe. So that was my last couple of undergraduate internships. And then my graduate internships were working on spacesuit technology development. Very, very cool. Yeah. NASA doesn't build a spacesuit, a new one, all that very often. There was a really kind of a pressure suit, not much designed for spacewalking in Mercury. And then Gemini had a specific design of a spacesuit that could do some bits of spacewalking. Ed White did the first American spacewalk from a Gemini capsule. And then, of course, the Apollo suits to go walking around on the moon or hopping around on the moon, more like. So when you start with the suits and with Joe, the shuttle's already flying, so... Yeah, yeah, shuttle's flying. So they they had developed and and operational with the current version, an early version of the suit they use today. Right. Right. So it's the the shuttle, now the station, you know, um, extravehicular mobility unit, EMU. Okay. So that was flying. Where I was with Joe was after Apollo, they had continued looking at advanced technology. You know, even during Apollo, they realized that the suit they had flown in their initial missions was a compromise. Spacesuit design is predicated on where you're going and what you're doing. However, with the Apollo program, they had to try to collapse three different jobs, you know, three what you're doings and where you're goings into one suit. So it was the crew survival aspect, okay. your microgravity spacewalking, and your lunar spacewalking. Okay. All in one suit. So sitting still, but protected with atmosphere and all that, or basically swimming, moving hand over hand on the outside of the capsule, or walking. Yes. Yep. That's a good description. Yeah. And and so when you're talking about building a a pressure garment, so think think a scuba tank that you're going to make people-shaped, and you need them to move in it. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) You know, it's it's not a high-pressure scuba tank, but it is up to eight pounds per square inch, yeah. right, of, of pressure versus maybe the 40 or something. Yeah. No, I guess tanks have 100. You know, yeah, but the atmosphere that we're sitting in if we're at sea level is like just shy of 15. So the yes. pressure inside the suit could be yeah. as much as half the atmosphere. Yes. Approximately. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, so it's not real high pressure, but it definitely is um, when you're in space and there's zero pressure, you know, vacuum, it, it's inflated. It does feel stiff. It's solid. It feels like a pressure vessel. It is a pressure vessel. Yeah, it's a balloon, basically. It's a balloon, but it, I say scuba tank because it, it feels, you know, yeah. balloons fe- seem squishier than the suit actually feels when you're you know, using it. I always think of those long circus balloons that people can twist yeah. into different shapes. But if you if you try to bend that long skinny balloon without making it twist, it won't bend. And that's kind of what the spacesuit would do if people like you and Joe Cosmo couldn't figure out how to enable it to twist where your elbow is, for example. 
Right. And so that's what we do. We take those long skinny balloons and we figure out, okay, you want to bend an elbow and you want to make that not hard and you want the, the suit fighting you because, you know, when you bend those long, long skinny balloons, they want to go back to straight. Yeah. And, and so I don't want to fight that all the time. I want to, I want to be able to bend my elbow and not have to work against the suit to do that. Right. Or even more so, you know, when they, they rotate it to try to make, yep. you know, like the little head of the dog or whatever. <laughs> At that point where you're where you're twisting it, the diameter necks down, right? Right. It gets small. In fact, it goes away. <laughs> and so, if you want to rotate a balloon like you do when you're trying to make that that dog's head, then again, the the balloon wants to snap back to you know straight and open. Yep. And so, if you if you're trying to rotate your shoulder, for example, a you don't want the the suit kind of starting to crunch down on your shoulder. And again, you don't want to have to fight it the whole right. time you're trying to move it. And so there are different strategies that we use to try to make that pressure garment move like a human. And so in the elbow, that single axis joint where it's just a hinge, right? Right. Use one kind of pattern or um, technique. And then when you use, you want to rotate a joint like at your shoulder or at your wrist, you use bearings. Okay. Okay. So to get back to where we came from, when you build a walking suit, you want to make that very capable. You want to allow your waist to move, your hips to move. You know, you want to have an ankle joint, even an ankle bearing. So it starts to be a lot of these bearings and it starts to get bigger and heavier. And if you're trying to use that, that same suit as a crew survival suit, like they were doing in Apollo, you really have to make big compromises. I see. Because the, the same architecture you'd want to use for that good planetary walking suit is going to be exactly the kind of architecture you don't want. Got it. Yeah. For that really good, light, comfortable crew survival suit. Yeah. When I say comfortable, I don't mean just it feels nice. I mean, it's not going to hurt you when you land hard in the water on land. Um, if you have a waist bearing in your suit and you have a hard landing. Yeah. That metal is going to go land right on your that back. Bearing, you're going to break your back. Yeah. So you know, that, that tends to not be comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so the suit that was in use when you first came aboard, and there's a later version of it being used now, is an interesting design. I liken it to a pair of pants and a hard shell shirt, long sleeve shirt that you put on, and then you clamp gloves onto the end of each sleeve and a helmet onto the top. But each of those places where the bits join is, a, as you were just saying, a pretty hefty metal ring to be strong enough to hold those pieces of the balloon together. Am I correct that was designed, this space shuttle suit, station suit, specifically designed for the first time just to do one thing, just to float around in microgravity? Yeah, that was the first design that U.S. ever did that was specifically just for microgravity operations. Okay. Yeah, so the boots are great for getting into a foot restraint on the shuttle or station, the boots are not at all what you would use for walking on a planetary surface. Yeah, the boots of that suit are kind of like the orthopedic boot that the doctor would clamp on your lower leg if you'd broken your ankle. It doesn't let you do too much. <laughs> yeah. No, we kind of call, call them the clown shoes. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're big. They're hard. They don't bend. Right. They have a big fiberglass plate for the sole. <laughs> and, you know, they are not made for anything but in a foot restraint, in microgravity. <laughs> Big thing you created and helped field, uh, was it a, a new set of gloves? Yeah, so when I came into the lab, you know, Joe had just gotten a suit called the Mark III, 
Um, so we, we were doing testing with that, but he'd also been working for near a decade on a new, better glove for this spacesuit. And so he, we had two different vendors that were building the glove and we'd make an iteration each time we did a new version because, hey, this was really good, but let's not do this again. You know, that kind of a decision-making process. And in the end, we got to a glove that we thought was significantly enough better that we needed to talk to the flight program about it. And so that was my job. My job was to take what we call the phase six glove because it was the phase six of our you know iterations. <laughs> Get it out of the lab. Yeah, yep. And it should be the 6,000 series glove since it went to the flight program, but it was marketed <laughs> under phase six, so we just kept it, right? Marketing is important. <laughs> <laughs> and, but yeah, I took I took Joe's work, really, and, and just was the one who was asked to go talk to the flight program, tell them about the glove, explain what we thought was better about it, work with the crew members. Um, we built the first iterations of the glove four, and then do the flight test, and then kind of at the same time, even before the results of the flight test came out, we um, were implementing it in the fleet because, you know, during training and testing, folks were seeing the, the improvements that had been made and they were significant enough that they wanted to go ahead and, and use it for the program. And who got to wear that first set of flight gloves? <laughs> um, that was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, tell us the story. Give it yeah. up. <laughs> so, um, yeah, my dad, my dad was the first one. And this wasn't random or this wasn't because he's my dad. He'd been working with Joe um, along with a few other crew members like Sonny Carter, a couple others, but they'd been working with Joe on, on advanced suit work. And so they'd been evaluating other gloves and dad had done a test flight of a glove called the 5000 series glove uh, on a previous mission. So he was taken forward and, and this was the next iteration of that. And so we were building his gloves. And of course, it was the first time we'd built the gloves for a shuttle flight. So there were new requirements, you know, new testing that we were doing. Uh, we were failing them. <laughs> um, more than once, we failed the glove while we were certifying it. It's called learning. <laughs> it's called learning. <laughs> it's a good thing. You want to fail it on the ground, not in yep. flight. And so my dad would keep asking me, are you ready yet? Are you done yet? Are you ready yet? <laughs> and I actually was leaving for the launch, and we were still signing out the paperwork <laughs> that said that glove was good to fly. The glove was good to fly, but we just had to, you know, dot our I's and cross our T's to get it on the shuttle and, and use it. What does that feel like? I mean, I, it's something that, again, few people know about the space program, but this glove you've designed and tested and had all those failures with is going to launch on a space shuttle and an astronaut's going to hop in that spacesuit, get in the airlock, dump all the air out of the airlock, and critically depend on that suit. That suit just became her own spaceship, in fact. That's how significant it is. What is it like that moment where you, Amy Ross, have to sign on a piece of paper that essentially says, I swear this glove will work fine and you know, not kill the astronaut by blowing a seam or something? What does that feel like? <laughs> it feels like you're trusting a lot of people. Um, the space program is built on trust. And I, I knew that before I even started working there. You know, when I was going on site and seeing dad train and then watched him launch the first time and then launch the second time after the Challenger flight, you just realize how many people have to do their job right. And I'm talking all the way from the, the first engineer that designed a piece to the technicians that machined the piece to the people that assembled the piece, the people that, you know, test it. 
to the people who make the flight plan, to the people watching the countdown clock. I mean, all everybody. You are trusting everybody involved in that mission to make sure that your dad comes home alive. That's that's what you're doing. And and once you accept that you're a part of that team, then you know that you hold lives in your hands. And so it's a huge responsibility. I work on the pressure garment piece of the spacesuit. It's a little less engineery feeling <laughs> to some um, classic engineers that you know do mechanisms right. and do stress analysis and all that kind of you know engineering stuff. Um, I, I have fabrics. I talk about stitches per inch. I talk about you know the the feel of the fabric, right? The hand, and it doesn't feel the same to people. But I'm telling you, when you're signing off to send a piece of your spacesuit hardware on a mission, and I don't care if it's your dad or anybody, you know that lives matter and and you are making sure that you bring them home safe. That is, I, I was offered the chance to talk at the plant that makes the suits. Um, I all see it over one time. And once I, I talked about basically what I just said, you know, I, I'm counting on you right. <laughs> to do your job. I could tell that they knew that already. I could tell they already felt that. They already accepted that responsibility and did their job accordingly. And that that's what everybody that works on the space program, works for the human space flight does. They have to do their job and have to do it well. And that's one of the great joys of working at NASA is everybody is there because they wanna be there. Everybody is there and understands what we're doing. And, and understands the criticality of it. And so they make sure that they do their piece. They make sure that they ask the questions. And sometimes it's really frustrating because you feel like, no, that's fine. I solved that problem. You don't need to worry about that. But that's their right and that's their job. And that's what they should do is if they have questions, they need to get them settled to make sure that everybody believes that we're ready to fly and fly safely. So yeah, it, it's, um, how does it feel? It feels disconcerting. <laughs> <laughs> and you just have to, you know, reinvest in that trust that you've built that, yes, we did this yeah. right. And I believe this is going to be fine. Yeah. It's going to be safe. You know, it's very weighty. And yep. NASA consists of human beings. So, of course, there are bits of gamesmanship and ego and all those weaknesses that humans have. But the fact that at least in the part of the agency devoted to putting people into space safely and bringing them back safely... There's that unambiguous moment that I think I think removes, eradicates a lot of the gamesmanship because of the momentousness that you just described. That's what I, I think I think Hollywood does do do a decent job of of showing that in a lot of their movies. You know, we say <laughs> if a space mission is nominal, if it, it if it goes well, it is boring, right? <laughs> I mean, it, unless you're inspired by the actual things that are happening. But it should be very rote, routine, normal. It should be calm, quiet, but, you know, and that doesn't always make a good movie. Right. But it's a beautiful thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because it means that everybody did their job right. Everything is going the way it's supposed to do. It, it, it's the culmination of all that hard work coming out to play. 
It's a version of the most magnificent long pass Super Bowl play with complete precision that you ever saw, but on double steroids, because everyone yeah. has had to be in the right place at the right time yeah. doing the right And you thing. don't see the defense trying to keep all that happening. You don't see that, but it's there. Oh, yeah. It's there. Exactly. <laughs> Very cool. So there's a whole new effort underway in the spacesuit world at NASA because, of course, the country's stated plan that the agency is pursuing is to put people back on the moon and on from there to Mars. So what's what's happening with spacesuits now to get ready for that? Yeah, so um, we are commercializing um, spacesuits. So we're going to have a vendor that will be selected to and design, uh, we'll see how that works, design and then supply spacewalking capability to the agency. We're still trying to figure out exactly what that looks like and how we're going to write that down and make that work. It's interesting because we have the folks that have built the suits today. There are some smaller, newer, but learning companies out there. Uh, but this is this is a little different to me than when we asked you know, folks to build cargo resupply vehicles and then commercial crew vehicles for us because there there was an industry building rockets and flying things out there at right. the time. Other than our current vendor for the current station suit, there there aren't people who have built and flown EVA suits. So it, it's going to be a challenge. Because right now NASA defines the suit and hires ILC Dover, the company, hires to build the design we NASA created, right? And and you're proposing to turn that around and say, I just need to be able to walk around on the moon. You design and bring me a suit that will let me do that. Is that the kind of difference? Yeah, that's kind of how I understand it. We've been working on technology development for a long time. And recently we were, NASA was developing the suit we thought we were going to take to the moon next um, called the Exploration Extravehicular Mobility Unit or XEMU. Um, so we've been working on design, uh, and we are at the point where we've built hardware and we are testing that hardware um, before we finalize the design. And so we'll have all that information to hand over. So if folks want to take take it and use it, make use of it, then they that is available to them. Okay. That is part of the, the service that NASA is providing to these vendors. But if they want to say, yeah, never mind, I think I'm as good at this as you are. I'm going to come up with a whole design of my own. And they just need to prove to us that they've met requirements. Yep. Okay. And, and some kind of fly-off, I would imagine, that, I mean, they claim this is going to be super easy to walk around in. Uh, would you guys put NASA suit engineers or astronauts in and say, you go tell me if their claim is right? Yeah, we're still trying to figure out how all that's going to work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I don't know if one or two vendors is going to be selected and, you know, see which one comes up with a better suit, kind of like they did during the Apollo program, yeah. if we really just have the, the funding to... to work with one vendor. Yes, NASA will be involved in helping to check that we believe those requirements are being met. Now, how that is done, I don't know yet. I'd feel better if we put some of our folks in there and move around because, you know, always that's true at NASA too. There's always people that you can find within your organization or bring into your organization that can move that suit like nobody else can move them. And of course, that's the person you put in when you're (laughs) demoing the suit, right? Right. But yes, you know, so that's why you don't ever believe that. Cause yeah, because <laughs> I have people that are kind of shorter than you, and I want to know that they can use it too. Right, <laughs> yeah. right, right. Yep, Very yep. interesting. <laughs> How's the new suit fabricated? I, I, a lot of folks don't appreciate it. I didn't appreciate it 
till I got up to ILC Dover myself, how much of the shuttle spacesuit was basically hand-sewn garments. It's not spit out of some automated machine. There's a lot of seamstress work. Yeah, so right now with the XEMU, uh, the way that design stands, architecture, is that it's soft goods, elbows, knees, gloves, and then part of the boots, right? A lot of the boots. And and yes, that's still largely hand-sewn items. Um, There just isn't another good way to get it done yet. That's amazing. There there were shapes. There's, you know, part of the the specialization of NASA does create the case where you're not cranking out thousands. And so when, before you build tooling, you need to know you're going to get that investment that you spend the tooling back, right? And so we don't build a lot of specialized machines because you're going to spend more money on those machines than if you just have an skilled individual doing the work. Right. A lot of investment for a machine that's only ever going to make three sets of gloves is not yeah, a sensible for thing something. to do. Yeah. No, no. Even if it's 300, it's still, you know. <laughs> yeah, pretty marginal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know you've already done some field analog testing, like going to places on Earth that maybe have geology and landscape sort of similar to Moon or Mars. Tell me about your experience being a desert rat. Yes, that was fun. During my participation in the desert rats, which was research and technology studies, we would basically spend our year preparing for it. So it was really a way to manage, organize our technology development. So the real point of it was to make sure that our requirements that we were choosing for the spacesuit were accurate. And so the way that we were doing that was asking folks to take our suit and do the things that we thought that they would need to do on a planetary surface. And when you think about that, it's largely the geology kind right. of things that we have robots doing. Kneel down, beat on yep. a rock. Yep, yep exactly. Maybe um, you know at some point... <laughs> climbing down cliffs, but yeah. not yet, not yet. <laughs> yes, it's, it's it's walking around, yeah. picking up rocks. It's using a hammer to chip off of a cliff, those kinds of things. And so we would um, figure out what objectives we wanted. To, so what we needed to learn each each mm-hmm. year, we would get partners. So we had other centers of at NASA. We had um, university partners. We had some of our corporate industry partners work with us saying, hey, I want to try this out or I want to work with this technology or I want to test this. And so we would put that plan together along with our flight operations folks. And then we would dry run it at NASA, at Johnson Space Center. We had a little rock pile out in the back and make sure everything was coming along, right? Because it's, it's a big difference from something working in your lab yes. to something working in outside at our little rock pile to something working in the desert for two weeks. And so we matured things through that, you know, buildup. And we had, you know, the whole checkpoints and, you know, many milestones that people had to meet to participate. But then I was frequently the lead logistician. (laughs) (laughs) So I was responsible for getting everybody there on time, getting all their stuff there on time, making sure all of our our trailer had all of our stuff that we needed, not just the primary equipment, but all the spares that we thought we would need. And not just to do the specific suit test, but, you know, just run the whole operation in the field and uh, it expanded from we would take maybe 10 people out to the field to we had over a, well over 100 people wow. out the field at the end. Yeah. So have you gotten to be the test subject in the suit 
I'm sure you've done it in the lab. How, have you also gotten some time in the big swimming pools where you kind of feel like you're working in zero G and tromping around, you know, the desert that might be Mars? Yeah. Yeah. So over time I've gotten old enough that I'm the lead Ooh. because Joe retired. <laughs> so, so I've um, become the lead. And one of my philosophies with the team is that you cannot be a good spacesuit engineer if you haven't been in a suit doing some of this work. And so we really prioritize making sure that our team members get in the suit, at least in the lab. But if you have an opportunity to get out out does rats or into the neutral buoyancy laboratory and experience what that's like, then you're gonna have so much more awareness of what a subject is telling you, how you want the suit to behave that it's not doing yet, all those kinds of things that just insight to, to what a spacesuit is and does is really best understood firsthand. Yeah. And to really understand the feedback you would get from a flight crew. I mean, if right. you've got no suit it's experience, it's too abstract almost. Yes. Yes. Very much so. So yes, I've been in a variety of different suits. I've been on the, the vomit comet in suits. I've been in the neutral buoyancy lab, microgravity and lunar gravity in the suit. I was never a subject at rats, but I was, I've been in the suit in the rock pile yeah. before. So you just, you just <laughs> said something interesting. I think a lot of folks are familiar with the vomit comet, the jet that flies in big parabolas. And at the top, you've got 15, 20, maybe, maybe 30 seconds of zero G. But you just said Martian gravity or lunar gravity. Mm-hmm. So the pilots also know how to fly that airplane. So at the top of the parabola, you have one third of Earth's gravity or one sixth and make that pretty steady. Is, is that what you meant? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's physics. Yeah. Um, so if you, if you fall steeper, you fall, you know, with gravity, yep. Earth gravity. But if you want to fall at a, a slower gravity, you can make that dive at a less steep angle. Okay. And then you, you get the partial gravities. So you can, you can fly at any partial gravity, but you can, yes, they, yeah. the NASA pilots have been very good at flying at 1.6 G Mars uh, moon gravity and 1.3 G Mars gravity. Kind of like when you go real fast over the crest of a hill in a car, sometimes you yeah. get thrown completely off your seat Ooh. and sometimes you just feel kind of light. Yeah. That's yep. very, very fun. Well, we're coming close to the appointed time here and you know, I'd like to do something with you that I, I do with many of the uh, people I've been able to speak to, and that's do a, a little bit of this sort of lightning round questions, okay. just just for grins. And the first one I have to ask you, because not only is your father an astronaut, but your mother works at NASA in the, the astronaut food program. So daughter dresses dad and, and wife feeds him is a pretty good arrangement. So the first lightning question is, how many astronaut meals have you eaten? Oh, probably in the 20s, 30s. <laughs> Because mom would bring leftovers from crew quarters <laughs> and mom would also bring home, you know, something they'd freeze dried that hadn't gone quite well or they were trying <laughs> and we try the recipe. Very, very <laughs> fun. Are you Star Trek or Star Wars? Oh, okay. Yep. Favorite overall space movie? Ooh, probably A New Hope. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Sci-fi. <laughs> oh, very cool. Dark or milk chocolate? Dark. <laughs> Cats or dogs? Oh, both on that one, too. I've got got both. I foster more cats, though. (laughs) I love it. Do you prefer to play sports or watch them? Now I prefer to watch them, but I think playing them gives you the joy in watching them. And what's one thing you wish everybody knew about spacesuits? Spacesuits are real space hardware, too. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then finally, and we talked about this a little bit before we got going, the spacesuits that have been most in the news and in the media these last several days are the SpaceX black and white suits that crews wear on the Dragon flights. What can you tell us about those suits? They look so much sleeker and cooler than NASA's spacewalking yeah. suit. What is that? So this is a, a really good place to explain that there are, are really two different kinds of spacesuits. We use spacesuits for crew escape, crew survival, and that's what the SpaceX suit is. So to protect you if something goes wrong in launch or landing. Right. Okay. Yeah, so you, you have a leak in your capsule. You have a spacesuit on, that's your secondary capsule environment, basically, and, and you live through it, right? Because there was an accident with the Russians and they lost their capsule pressure and they did not have spacesuits at the time and, and their crew members died as they were landing. Yeah, yeah. So that's a crew survival suit. They're, they're fire resistant, so if there's a fire on the pad, you've got a better chance of getting off. They have knives on them, so if you land in the water and you have to, you know, kill a fish, or cut your <laughs> cut your parachute cord, <laughs> or cut your parachute cords, or you know, the, there's all of those kind of survival scenarios that those suits support. Very important. I work on, you usually mostly I've done some of both the extravehicular activity suits. So you wear them outside of the vehicle trying to get work done. So in brief, the crew survival suits, if things are going well. You wear them unpressurized for a short period of time. And then if things are going poorly, that's when it's pressurized. And then you usually don't have to do much in them when they're pressurized other than just survive until you, you do whatever you need to do right. to take care of crew survival. Then with the EVA suits, the whole point is for them to be pressurized so you can take your spaceship with you outside of the spaceship, right? And so you have your power, you have your communication, you have your your pressure, you have your air, all of that's with you while you go and do work, like build a space station. It's on your back, typically. Yes, yeah. You have your life support system on your back and your pressure garment around the rest of you. Yeah. Yep. So they're easy to make look cool because you kind of only have to wear them for 10 minutes on the way up and 45 minutes or an hour on the way down and largely just sit still in them. Yes. Okay. Yep. That's, that's a big piece of it. Walk out towards the launch pad for the cool, yes. fancy astronaut yes. picture and then just sit I still. I good doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and that's where I always say the EVA suits are beautiful because everything is there for a reason. And so there's, a, there's something there keeping you alive or, or letting you do your work. And so that is a good and happy thing. <laughs> and that's why they look the way they look. And that's why they look the way they look. And they have to put up with the heat and cold and radiation of true deep space, which is completely different than just the launch and landing suit. Yes. Yep. Well, I hope someday we're seeing an, an Amy Ross suit design, someday not too far in the future, an Amy Ross suit design, at least on the moon and maybe on Mars. And I hope that crew has the good sense and wisdom to take along a nice little plaque and plant it on the moon <laughs> on your behalf. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Kathy. <laughs> Me too. That, that's what you'd always like to see in a career. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's been great fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.
This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.